Good morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. This morning, we're marking a major birthday, not of a person, but of a device. Amazing upon its release 10 years ago this week, the gadget is all but ubiquitous now, giving new and enhanced meaning to the phrase, hold the phone. David Pogue will report our cover story. Today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. It's not just the phones that have changed since Steve Jobs introduced us to the iPhone 10 years ago. We have, too. It's a universal prosthetic. Uh, it basically makes the computer part of who we are. It's like losing a limb to go out in the world without your smartphone. The iPhone's first 10 years, later on Sunday morning. Our Sunday profile this morning is of John McEnroe, a tennis great whose outburst grated on the nerves of many a harried umpire back in the day. McEnroe talks about that and more this morning with Susan Spencer. He was either a breath of fresh air or an insult to the stuffy, proper world of tennis. You cannot be serious! You have certainly not lost intensity over this issue. I'm mellow, are you kidding? <laughs> You're mellow now? Oh, yeah. Here's a secret. Everyone come in close. We'll catch up with John McEnroe and find out the one thing his rock star wife says he's not allowed to do. The public does not want that ever. Later on Sunday morning. What's so funny about the long and conflicted history of race in America. Comedian Dick Gregory can tell you, drawing as he does from his own life experiences, opposing racism in all its forms. Aaron Moriarty will be telling his story. In the early 1960s, a young Dick Gregory emerged as one of the hottest comics in the country. When they say this show features living color, you better believe it. <laughs> But then he gave it up to fight for civil rights, and he took his wife and many of his 10 children with him. How many times were you arrested before the age of 12? I would say at least six or seven times. How 84-year-old Dick Gregory is still packing the house. God bless you. Ahead on Sunday morning. Seth Doan has found a true glass act just across the water from Venice. On the Italian island of Murano, generation after generation has been passing down and trying to protect the art of blowing glass. They kept all these secrets, and it was a criminal offense for a glass blower to leave Murano. It was punishable with death. This precise and quite particular world of glass ahead on Sunday morning. Lee Cowan has a heart to heart with a woman who's had three. Singer Cindy Lauper has her own take on equality. We take note that the Beatles' All You Need Is Love is all of 50 years old and more. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Whoever first said, hold the phone, could never have imagined this one. It's an original iPhone, part of the first generation of iPhones that went on sale to much hoopla 10 years ago this coming Thursday. Our cover story is reported by David Pogue, tech critic for Yahoo Finance. 
There's been a lot of talk about the soon-to-be-released iPhone. It's got everything you need all wrapped up in one. The Apple Store staying open until midnight to meet the huge demand. iPhone! Ten years ago this week, the iPhone arrived in stores, and the world hasn't been the same. I got the iPhone! Check that out! Because of the iPhone, we now take it for granted that we're on the Internet all the time. Because of the iPhone, we have everything in this old Radio Shack ad in our pockets. Computer, calculator, camcorder, alarm clock, phone, music player, answering machine, and tape recorder. Because of the iPhone, hardly anyone buys maps anymore. Or pocket cameras. Or watches. And because of the iPhone, we've become a nation of distracted drivers, distracted walkers, and distracted dinner companions. Until the iPhone, cell phones were clunky. The BlackBerry was king. And Apple co-founder Steve Jobs was working in total secrecy at the company's California headquarters on a device that would soon change all that. In January 2007, he took the stage to unveil it. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod, a phone. Are you getting it? These are not three separate devices. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. That iPhone wouldn't actually go on sale for another six months. During that time, nobody outside Apple was allowed to see the phone or touch the phone. The hype machine went into overdrive. Hello. Hello. Especially after 40 million viewers saw this commercial on that year's Oscar broadcast. And then, two weeks before the phone went on sale, Apple quietly handed iPhones to four tech reporters to review. Stephen Levy, then of Newsweek, Ed Begg of USA Today, Walt Mossberg, then of the Wall Street Journal, and me, then of the New York Times. We had two days between the time our review came out and the thing went on sale. I've never been more popular in my life. I wish I had this thing in high school, you know? In celebration of the iPhone's 10th birthday, the first four people outside Apple ever to use an iPhone sat down to reminisce. Steve called us all while we had it, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're walking he, down the he street. He called me multiple times a day. Mm-hmm. How's it going? Mm-hmm. I go, Steve, I, I, it's not the way I do reviews. I, I'll call you. I said, we'll talk, but don't worry, yeah. don't, don't worry about it. There was a lot missing from this phone. People forget. Uh, it had no front camera. It didn't have a flash for pictures. It didn't have cut and paste. It didn't have cut and paste. It couldn't record video. And you couldn't even send a picture as a text message. And I've got this little keyboard, which is phenomenal. It does. The so most radical aspect great. of the iPhone was that it was all touchscreen. It had no physical keys for typing. After three days, I was ready to throw this thing out of the window for trying to type on glass. Mm, it was yeah. just so hard. It's Ten years later, and half the emails I get still have a little message underneath <laughs> saying, typed on phone, forgive the yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> on the other hand, Making the entire phone a screen unleashed a world of possibilities. It was a huge canvas for photos, videos, maps, and web pages. 
It could change its look for each app. And it meant that Apple could design a whole new way to interact with machines. Yeah, it's a little cracked screen, but uh, that's the old, uh, the first iPhone. Wow, it's <laughs> so tiny. I mean, look at this. In 2005, Dutch software designer Bas Ording was at Apple designing software experiments for a multi-touch screen, figuring out how you would navigate a computer without a keyboard, mouse, or stylus, just touching things with your finger. We had to think about, like, how can you type on it, or how can you manipulate images on it, or that kind, those kind of things. Are you saying that the idea of the touchscreen came before anyone started putting it on a phone? Right, yeah, it was before the phone. And at some point, I think, probably Steve thought, like, oh, this would be great to put on a phone. <laughs> so it's that's when of, we went in that direction. Yeah, you know, what is the meaning of this swipe? Am I moving this? Part of what made the iPhone a hit was that objects in that touchscreen world have their own physics. It's <laughs> cool. You can thank Boss Ording for some of it, like how lists have momentum when you flick them, or how they do a little bounce when you get to the end. And, and now a billion people are using your idea. Is it a billion? That's a lot. That's okay. <laughs> wow, that's a, yeah, that's I mean, cool. does that ever freak you out? Uh, a little bit, I guess, if you really think about it that way. That's, but it's also pretty cool, I guess, if people like to use it, then I think that's a good thing to them. Did anyone at the time on this team have any idea how big this could be? Oh, no, <laughs> not at all. I, I didn't, for sure. What's great about the iPhone is that if you want to check snow conditions on the mountain, there's an app for that. A year after the iPhone came out, Apple introduced the App Store, a central catalog of free or cheap little programs written by programmers all over the world. That's when iPhone sales really went through the stratosphere. And if you want to check where exactly you parked the car, there's even an app for that. And just those apps have launched entire industries. Think of Uber, the ride-sharing company valued at $68 billion. Or Instagram, which Facebook bought in 2012 for a billion dollars. These days, of course, the iPhone isn't the only game in town. Hey, man. Oh, hey. How's it going? Saved you a spot. I moved on. But you're not going to miss all this? Uh, I got the Samsung GS3 now. In 2008, Google created a look-alike phone design called Android, which it gives away to phone makers. Today, Android phones outsell the iPhone. A lot of people say since Steve Jobs died six years ago, they don't have this idea man anymore. Uh, is Apple sunsetting now? Are they done with innovation? How often can you come out with something that changes the world? I mean, we're all unfair perhaps in, in the media sometimes. Oh, they haven't had a hit lately. Well, who else has had a hit lately? So on its 10th birthday, it's time to ask, where does the iPhone fall on the scale of humanity's greatest inventions? Is it right up there with the television? The car? Electricity? Fire? Hard to say, but millions of people would agree the iPhone changed everything. We don't have Steve Jobs around to ask. We would all be getting interviews with him now, not because of the 10th anniversary, but uh, I don't think he, he foresaw the, the hugeness of it, and uh, I don't think anybody did. Ahead, roaming the seven seas with the one and only Jacques Cousteau. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, June 25th, 1997, 
20 years ago today, the day the great ocean explorer and environmental advocate Jacques Cousteau died at the age of 87. A French Naval Academy graduate, Cousteau devoted his life to studying the sea. He helped develop the Aqualung and other undersea exploration technology. And aboard his research vessel, the Calypso, he and his crew sailed the oceans for decades, probing their mysteries and plunging their depths. Cousteau once fended off a shark with his underwater camera. There always remains a certain dose of danger. Through it all, he never ceased arguing the case for saving the oceans from pollution and degradation, as he did on Sunday morning back in 1994. We have inherited a wonderful planet. We have uh, substantially damaged this planet, but even the remains are beautiful. <laughs> and we have at least to protect this for the generations to come. And he went on to express regret for what he would be missing once he was gone. I will be sorry, not for my pleasure, but for all the things that I'm interested in that I will not be able to follow up. <laughs> Today, the society that bears Cousteau's name is continuing his mission. Guided by his own words, the impossible missions are the only ones that succeed. A visit to the Island of Glass is just ahead. No doubt about it, these three pieces are a glass act, prime examples of the timeless craftsmanship to be found on the island our Seth Doan has visited. The furnaces glow orange and belch heat. And at around 3,000 degrees, something almost magical takes place. A sand mixture melts and becomes glass. The molten concoction can then, like candy, be squeezed, pulled, or shaped. It's a craft they've been perfecting on this Italian island for generations. How unique is Murano, this island of glassmakers? Murano is the mecca of glass. In this glass mecca, there's no mistaking the dominant industry. Adriano Barengo owns a studio here. You know, somebody speak about the secret of Murano, but to tell you frankly, there are no secrets anymore. What do you mean? <laughs> glass, glass is a, is a chemical compound. So, from the point of view of the material itself, there is nothing special in Murano. What is special is still the ability of the craftsman. That ability is also on display at the nearby Fornace, or furnace, of the great glassmaker Archimede Seguso. Here, few words are said. The glass speaks and how it moves and hardens. It's a silent symphony. In fact, the lead glass blower is called Maestro. The finished product commands a high price. This piece retails for more than $1,000. Your father was a master. Oh, yes. It was the, the master of the masters. Upstairs from the workshop, Gino Seguzo showed us some of his late father Archimedes' work. This was in a museum in Vienna. In Vienna, yes. So many of these pieces have been oh, in museums. Yes. 
Morano has set the trend for centuries, and the Seguzo family has had some practice. Your family has been at it for how long? Uh, 650. Yes, 650 years. That's 25 generations. How did Murano become this island of glass? Murano Murano was an industrial settlement, Seguzo explained. The city of Venice was mostly made from wood, and Venetian glass factories regularly caught fire. So by order of the doge, or ruler of the time, glassmakers were moved to the island of Murano in 1291. Venice's lagoon functions as a moat, keeping Murano a fire-safe distance from the ancient city. Putting so many glassmakers on such a small, less than a mile wide island sparked competition and created in David Landau's eyes something exquisite. Morano glass can be indifferent and can be stupendous. It can be marvelous and can be nothing. It can be boring, it can be disgusting, it can be vulgar, but it can be exciting, it can be extraordinary. It would be fair to say that Landau, a successful entrepreneur, fell in love with glass. We now have about, I don't know, 2,500. 2,500 <laughs> yeah, pieces of glass? It's in madness, it's total madness. Objects of his infatuation are on display at La Stanza del Vetro in Venice, which Landau co-created. It's part museum, part institute, and showcases the richness of Murano the creations of Italian Paolo Venini and American Ken Scott. You can see there's always a a, a touch of something that makes the fish special. Landau notes this art form is struggling today due to cheap knockoffs from China and fewer young people learning the craft. Glass has been made in Venice for a thousand years. Does it have another thousand still to go? Only. (laughs) I hope more. It's only a question of creativity, and that is what we'll always have in Murano. Creativity, the challenge to do new things, the challenge to continue to have jobs. This place has a pretty different feeling from some of the others here in Murano. I hope so. Adriano Berengo shuns the world of old-school chandeliers and glassware, preferring to work with contemporary artists. And he wanted to show us this. I am very proud of this. This is my little dream in the drawer, you see. It's not yet open, but Berengo has transformed an old workshop into what'll be a museum of contemporary art in glass, showcasing the avant-garde. This chandelier is made from broken champagne bottles. The traditionalists could say what you're doing here, contemporary art, threatens this great tradition of Murano glass. Well, somebody might think so. But in reality, I'm not threatening anybody. I'm advancing. I'm trying to bring glass to another step. Glassmaking techniques were once a state secret in Venice. And while today the process may be common knowledge, the craftsmanship and know-how of this place sets Murano an island apart. to come, comic Dick Gregory. Reverse racism. How come I can be racist just like you? How come mine got to be reverse? Outspoken as ever. And later... You cannot be serious! Catching up with tennis bad boy, John McEnroe. Well,
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. My brother called me. They're about to repossess my car. What must I do? Don't park in front of the house. It's Sunday morning on CBS. And here again is Jane Pauley. That's Dick Gregory in a 2009 TV special, proving he can still find humor in our country's race relations while confronting racism, often at great personal cost. Aaron Moriarty of 48 Hours takes us through his career from its early days, and fair warning, there's language ahead some will likely find offensive. Here is Dick Gregory. In the early 1960s, a young Dick Gregory emerged as one of the hottest comics in the country. I can say thank you very much, and when they say this show features living color, you better believe it. (laughs) Today, at 84 years of age, he is still saying it as he sees it. If them cops are shooting your children, if they shot dogs like that, white folks would burn the police station down all over the world. Gregory first made his name, along with contemporaries Bill Cosby and Richard Pryor, by focusing his wit on something that was no laughing matter, racism in America. But there are a lot of good advantages riding in the back of a bus. Next time you get on the bus, you notice where that emergency door is located. (laughs) A half century later, that humor has been revived in a one-man play called Turn Me Loose. Actor Joe Morton plays Gregory. Blonde waitress walked over and I said, um, could I get two cheeseburgers, please? And she said, well, we don't serve colored people. Well, I don't eat colored people. (laughs) Morton took a break from his starring role in the hit TV drama Scandal to channel Gregory and his groundbreaking performances. I needed to do this play so that I can face people and say, here are the things we need to talk about. I mean, we live in a world where racism hasn't changed at all. You know, it's that old thing of the more things change, the more things remain the same. The play, which ran in New York and is expected to open next in Los Angeles, reenacts the brutal heckling during Gregory's early live appearances. I'd rather be your slave than your liver, but (laughs) thank you for coming to the show. You've been a wonderful audience. How did you have the strength to deal with that, especially with humor? It angered me sitting there. So how did you deal with it with humor? Before I ever got to that point, I had my wife heckle me. At home? Yeah. Call All your name? Filthy words you could think. She couldn't even sing them. You know, you get ready for that. Gregory began performing comedy while in the Army, but got his first big break in 1961 with a 15-minute tryout at Hugh Hefner's Playboy Club in Chicago. I pushed this white boy out the way and ran up there and got on stage. Two hours later, they called Hefner. You were supposed to be on 15 minutes? 15 minutes. And Hefner came by, and they went out of their Gregory knew that to really make it, you had to appear on The Tonight Show with Jack Parr, but... White comics could sit on the couch 
a black comic couldn't. So as Gregory tells it, this is what happened when Parr's producer called a few months later with a coveted invitation to appear on his new show, The Jack Parr Program. Can we bring you in here tonight and have you on the show? I said, no, I don't want to work the portion. I hung up. You hung up? Hung up. The phone rang again. It's Jack Parr. Dick Gregory, it's Mr. Parr. It's Mr. Parr himself. How come you don't want to work my show? I said, because the Negroes never sit down. I said, well, come on in, I'll let you sit down. And that's how it happened. Are you a good audience tonight and treat me nice because with President Kennedy's new housing bill, I might be your neighbor now. <laughs> I came in, did my, went sit on the couch. It was sitting on the couch that made my salary grow in three weeks from $250 working seven days a week to $5,000 a night. What kind of a car you got? A Lincoln, naturally. Oh, well, that's it. <laughs> Gregory wanted more than just a seat at the table. He wanted to change America, and soon stand-up became sit-ins at civil rights rallies. And it was a family affair. Gregory, his wife Lillian, and their ten children. So the first time I was arrested, I was five years old. My sister Lynn was three. Michelle Gregory, a college professor, is the oldest. So you're number, number eight. Christian Gregory is a chiropractor. <laughs> How many times were you arrested before the age of 12? I would say at least six or seven times. Summer vacations, he says, were filled with marches, voter registration drives, and a lot of humor. It felt odd sometimes to be laughing when you were involved with something that was so life-altering and difficult, but laughter was it, was, it was healing for us. But for some events, there was no healing. The deaths of civil rights leaders Megger Evers and the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. took a terrible toll on their father. We would sometimes see the news footage of our father being beaten. Sometimes it was the police beating him, and sometimes it was um, folks who were upset about the protesting he was doing. But we always saw our father come home, and I think it was important for him, for, for his kids to see, I'm okay, and this is important what I'm doing. I chose to be an agitator. Gregory talked about his role with the late Ed Bradley during a 60 Minutes profile in 1989. The next time you put your underwear in the washing machine, take the agitator out, and all you're going to end up with is some dirty, wet drawers. He certainly stirred things up during the 1968 presidential campaign when Alabama Governor George Wallace, an avowed segregationist, entered the race as a third-party candidate. Dick Gregory jumped in, too. Were you needed in 1968? And needed, no. Yeah, needed, no. The election went to Richard Nixon, with Gregory winning nearly 50,000 votes as a write-in candidate. It goes deeper than the war. His political views on anti-war hunger strikes cost him fans, a lot of money, and even time with his family. He right. was top of his game, mm -hmm. and then he gave it up mm -hmm. in part to be part of the civil rights movement. Neither one of you regret? None of us do. Yeah. I mean, we get it. We get it. If you were raised the way we were raised and you didn't get it, something's wrong. Thank you. Thank you. It has been worth it, say the Gregory children. Their father has now returned to the stage. So what I'm saying to you is somewhere, take care of your body. Drink your water. More a sage 
than a stand-up comic. Mr. Dick With many of his shows, like this recent one in New York, sold out. Michelle, Michelle, this is the oldest. And to watch and cheer him on, there is usually at least one proud child in the audience. I think about courage and intellect and humor and how that gets interwoven with my father. And when you have those sorts of values in life, I guess the question is, why should it ever stop? <laughs> so again, I just say thank you. Thank you. Ahead, the unwilling royal. It happened this past week, a headline-making admission by a member of the British royal family. Prince Harry, fifth in line to the throne, posed a provocative rhetorical question during an interview with Newsweek. To quote the prince, is there any one of the royal family who wants to be king or queen? I don't think so. Immediately adding, stiff upper lip at the ready, that we will carry out our duties at the right time. Prince Harry recalled the trauma of the death of his mother, Princess Diana, and the terrible public role he was called upon to play at her funeral when he was just 12 years old. I don't think any child should be asked to do that under any circumstances. In life, Harry says, Diana taught him important lessons. My mother took a huge part in showing me an ordinary life, including taking me and my brother to see homeless people. Thank goodness I'm not completely cut off from reality. Following a young manhood that included both tabloid-worthy misbehavior and army service in Afghanistan, Harry says he now finds pleasure in trying to live an ordinary life, including, he says, doing his own food shopping. Together with brother William and sister-in-law Kate, Prince Harry says they're trying to modernize the monarchy, but not too much. It's a tricky balancing act, he says. We don't want to dilute the magic. Next, a story with heart. Three of them, in fact. Lee Cowan has had a remarkable heart-to-heart -heart talk with a woman who can tell us a lot about hearts, all of it learned through the most trying of experiences. My transplanted heart was coming to its abrupt end. It was not when Amy Silverstein sat down to write about her life, death was probably a little indignant. After all, Amy cheated death, not once, but twice. How you doing? I'm doing great. Whoa. At the heart of Amy's story are her hearts. Yes, hearts, plural. Amy's had three hearts so far, starting with the one she was born with. That one failed when she was just 24 years old, while she was out on a date. We were at dinner, and all of a sudden, my heart started beating erratically. What did it feel like? Um, uh, just a, a pulsing that was very powerful. Boom, 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 fast. I just remember saying, you know, don't let me die, don't let me die. Turns out a virus had damaged her given heart beyond repair. Her only option was a transplant. 
She was eventually matched with the heart from a 13-year-old girl. But living with a transplant wasn't the turnaround some might expect. The medication that she was taking daily to keep her body from rejecting her new heart is pretty nasty stuff with even nastier side effects. I've spent most of my adult life trying to keep Amy alive. That's Scott, the man Amy was out with on that fateful date. They married a year to the day after she got the transplant. We have an incredible love affair for 25 years, but day to day, it was filled with a lot of, a lot of sickness, a lot of um, crisis, uh, a lot of nights in the emergency room. Her closest friends saw just how hard living really was. Not that Amy wasn't grateful. We don't live inside of her body. And as close as we are, we don't know what it takes for her to get up and live every day and be in discomfort and feel nauseous and sick. I fought to keep this heart going with every pill, with every heart biopsy, with every run I would take, even if really I felt care sick. Such good care, such honoring of this gift that I had. But, you know, when, when you're 25 years old and you feel so ill, it's just, for me, impossible to, to have gratitude just carry you along with a smile. I believe that you can be grateful and angry, grateful and sad, grateful and lonely. That sentiment made it into a book she penned back in 2007 called Sick Girl. In it, she detailed that while she lived her life, even adopting a son, there were times she didn't feel much like living. Her account was frank, it was honest, and it was criticized. I did get some, some really cruel responses. Cruel. I mean, uh, one person wrote something to the effect of, um, the doctor should have let you die. Really? <laughs> you know? Her transplanted heart gave it everything it had, surpassing doctors' expectations by beating for an astonishing 25 years, more than double its predicted lifespan. But the day finally came when it, too, began to fail, forcing Amy to make a decision, get in line and hope for yet another transplant, or let her dying heart take her with it. I had lived uh, to 50 years. I had seen my son grow, gotten him off to college. I had written a book. I had graduated law school. I had married Scott, and we had wonderful years together. Maybe it was time, you know? Scott didn't fault her reservations. Neither did those friends. But despite all that, though, I'm sure you still wanted to urge her in the oh, direction we, of we fighting as hard as she yes. Urge would be yes. an understatement. Yes. <laughs> but also <laughs> extort. Right. <laughs> Robin Abrams, Lauren Stern, and Jill Dresner helped form what could only be described as a support group posse. No, no takers? <laughs> her best chance at getting a second heart transplant, a rarity by anyone's measure, was to leave her home in suburban New York and travel to Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. Nine of her closest friends promised that if she did that, they would fly out with her to keep watch over her and her husband every step of the way. I love a good spreadsheet, so um, <laughs> so I just organized and coordinated it. Not a single night by herself, not a right? Night. So do you think had it not been for that effort on the part of all your friends to make sure that you never spent a night alone, that maybe you wouldn't have gone through with it? I, I think I wouldn't have gone through with it. Her friends came and went in four-day shifts, often arriving a bit jet-lagged from the airport, with bags full of decorations to give Amy something to look at. They took her for walks, they did her hair, but the best comfort was simply their company. 
time time was so precious right it's it's just life in high relief i don't know how you're going to feel tomorrow you might not sleep tonight let's just take advantage of the time it was it it felt like a very special and separate um kind of womb like a cocoon Contained. almost yeah but really intense yeah. very intense how do you put a, a number on that how do you measure that it was just so critically important Almost three months into that devoted vigil, Amy's doctor finally appeared in her doorway with some rare good news. He said in that lovely, you know, soft, humble voice of his, we've got a donor for you. And he said that it was a 13-year-old girl. And um, I, I started to cry. Yes, incredibly, the heart of another 13-year-old girl would give Amy another shot at life. How close to dying were you, you think? I don't know if it was days, maybe a week. Very, very close. She and Scott sat on her bed, pondering what was about to happen again. And then it was off to surgery. Hi. Okay, Amy. Hi. Right. Good to see you. Good to see you. It was three years after that day that we accompanied Amy back to Cedar sinai for a routine checkup. Fabulous. Fabulous. Not one misbeat. I don't no. hear any extra sounds. Yeah, good. I could not be more pleased. Okay. okay. In the years since her first transplant, medical science has come a long way. Her new heart is a better match. The drugs are more targeted, the recovery time less. In fact, she was back to working out within weeks. <laughs> on most days, she even beats Scott on a run. But with every foot hitting the pavement comes the very same thought. I'm a mother to this heart, and I feel her. She was very much an athlete. I can feel that in this heart. And sometimes I even push out my chest a little bit when I'm running and let her run. You know, I know that's kind of weird, right? Um, but I feel her, and I feel that I'm carrying around a daughter this time. Yeah, okay. One, two, three, smiles. There was a party at Amy's house this past week to celebrate her second book, fittingly titled, My Glory Was I Had Such Friends. In short, it's about the power of showing up for those you love, no matter the odds, no matter the distance. These are icing on the cake days. So... I'm just so fortunate to be alive. I can't believe I made it. Here we go. Next, mother and son. Two, three. On a bucket list, Odyssey. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. A lesson on love is always welcome, no matter how long overdue. Here's Steve Hartman. In hindsight, Sean Pierre Regis says his mother, Rebecca, gave him a great childhood. In hindsight. Yeah, I was so mean to my mom growing up about having no money. I remember her crying a few times because I was so mean about it. Today, however, being great couldn't be more grateful. Yeah, you realize how lucky you are, and you're like, what was I doing? Like, what an idiot. Uh, maybe I'll do some laundry. Sean Pierre says what really set him straight was a voicemail he got from his mom last summer. I just got fired. Just want you to know that. 
call me back. That was it. Short and bitter. End of message. I was in shock. I never expected it to happen to me. My job and my kids with my life. So this was one thing that kept her going, and I think my biggest worry was, like, if she loses her job, what else does she have? Rebecca worked in housekeeping at a hotel here in Boston. She was a single mom who sacrificed everything for her children. And although Sean Pierre says he didn't really appreciate that as a kid, he clearly does now. After his mom was fired at 75, Sean Pierre started showing his gratitude in the sweetest possible way. He took her bucket list, and together they started ticking off items one by one. Milk a cow in Vermont. Done. Take a hip-hop lesson from a Hamilton dancer. Check. Learn to use Instagram. Just press the heart. Getting there. Here we go. He even flew his mom back to her native England to throw a penny off London Bridge and visit her sister's grave for the very first time. A lot of the list is things she could never do juggling work and kids. Most recently, they walked the entire length of the Boston Marathon because after years of cleaning rooms for all those runners, she just wanted to see the course for herself. I never felt younger. I never felt more loved. And actually, I'm excited about going and seeing the next, the next chapter. And that's how Sean Pierre thanked his mother for putting up with his thanklessness. But he says he received an even bigger gift, a lesson on love. You can't feel it when you're just running through life. You feel it when you help somebody up. So, yeah. You love her a little bit? Uh, she's all right. <laughs> <laughs> what did I say, umpire? Tell me. Please tell me. Ahead. Please tell me. Tennis great John McEnroe. Then and now. Here's a secret. Everyone come in close. And later... Thoughts on equality from pop star Cindy Lauper. Holy cannoli, you're John McEnroe. Hey, I saw what you did to those guys who were making fun of you. Nice work. You know what it's like to get riled up, don't you, Johnny Mac? That I do. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. Adam Sandler made light of John McEnroe's reputation for volatility in the 2002 film Mr. Deeds, a reputation with considerable basis in fact, as Susan Spencer reminds us in our Sunday profile. Four decades ago, John McEnroe stormed onto tennis's genteel courts. Yeah! That's it to McEnroe! Smashing conventions. And occasionally, rackets. I remember watching and thinking, what's he going to do next? I think I created, uh, you know, some people that wouldn't normally watch tennis, which was one of my goals. He battled the other greats of the time. Bjorn Borg, Jimmy Connors, Yvonne Lendl, and he battled any umpire he thought was wrong. a lot of umpires were wrong. What did I say, umpire? Tell me. Please tell me. Just please tell me. You seem to push it right up to the line. I'm not the only one. No. Right? you got to sort of be aware of what you can and can't do. They do that all the time in other sports. Oh, my God, you took it to the line. <laughs> wow. I mean, of course I took it to the line. After all, he figured they'd never actually throw him out. 
Well, they don't want to get rid of one of the best guys if he's bringing in ratings and mm -hmm. interest. So, I mean, that's part of the incentive of getting good because you get away with more. You cannot be serious! You cannot be serious became his catchphrase and the title of his first autobiography, followed now by a second. If there's a common theme, it's intensity. That spark lit long ago by his father back in Queens. My late father, he managed me, so he was great early on. He said, listen, you don't need to do this. You're better than them. You know, I mean, it was a loud dinner table at my house. He started playing tennis at eight and quickly climbed through the junior ranks. At 18, as an amateur, he stunned even himself by making the semifinals at Wimbledon. The critics could harumph about Super Brat all they wanted, but he was ranked number one in men's tennis from 1981 to 1984. Do you think it helped or hurt your game? I think it helped it at some times and it hurt it at others. You know, it cost me some big matches. Really? Yeah. Because? I hurt myself by getting involved in stuff where the crowd would turn on me and the momentum would shift and I wasted unnecessary energy and I screwed myself. By his mid-20s, McEnroe was on top of the world, traveling, hanging out with rock stars, but beginning to feel pressure from younger, fitter players. Adding to the pressure, he met actress Tatum O'Neill and was caught up in the whirlwind of her notorious Hollywood family. I never was in the National Enquirer, and I was like, what the hell is going on here? You weren't prepared for that. In retrospect, I would say that the safe answer would be no. McEnroe and O'Neill married, had three children, and tried for a normal life. I had a kid when I was 27, and I took about six months off at that time. And the plan was, okay, you're gonna sort of regroup. You've been going hard for eight or nine years. The game's changing, there's a lot more power, and you're gonna figure out a way to come back a better player. That was your plan? That was the plan. It did work out that way. How did it work out? It worked out that I wasn't as good a player. McEnroe did not win another Grand Slam singles title after the age of 25. He and O'Neill divorced after eight years. Their custody agreement required him to take anger management classes. Then, in 1993, life took a dramatic turn. He met someone new. He was impressed. She, not so much. follow tennis I mean I knew who he was I knew he yelled at people but I really didn't have like that's all I knew Patty Smythe was the lead singer of the band Scandal and fresh off a hit duet with Don Henley of the Eagles even so she found McEnroe's brand of fame somewhat bewildering you say that you think John inspires real love and real hate at the same time. What do you mean by that? You weren't talking about yourself, right? <laughs> Not me, baby. I know you. People really feel like they know him because he's so familiar to them. He stood up to the man and he challenged them and he said, you know, you can bleep this out. You, okay, I'm not gonna take it, all right? And so there were a lot of people who were like, yeah, maybe people who didn't have the nerve to do it themselves in their own life. And then when they maybe get up the nerve to come over and ask John for yet another selfie while we're in the middle of a romantic dinner, and John says, no, not right now, it's not a good time, they go right to, I knew you were a <laughs> so they go from, I love you, man, Bleed you're the greatest. Up. But it flips so fast. 
If his image hasn't changed much over the years, his interests certainly have. So it's sort of weird. On tour long ago, he used to kill time in museums and today has a love for contemporary art. Who is this? This is Frank Stella. Mm -hmm. He has his own invitation-only gallery in New York City. I relate to artists Why? a lot because they're out there by themselves, like tennis players, and they're basically stripped naked. But what's really fascinated and perhaps frustrated him is music. A fair guitarist, he'd played with the best. So soon after he and Patty married in 1997, he had a bright idea. You really wanted to join her band? Yeah, of course. Why well, wouldn't I? I mean, she's and a great singer. And he also okay. no, no, he'd also want to be the lead singer in my band. No, no. Okay, no. <laughs> yes, he would. Patty, who gave up her music career for several years to care for their combined six children, finally did what all those umpires of old had so wanted to do. She told him, in effect, to shut up. You get one amazing gift like John got. You don't get two, sorry. To go from anything to a musician, it's not allowed. I don't know why, but the public does not want that, ever. That ended that. But to also say, that uh, even now he's a little self-centered. Yes. Really? Yes. <laughs> Hard to and believe. And your point is, <laughs> aren't we all? He just has been John McEnroe since he's, you know, 17 or 18 years old. The world was at his feet and he really didn't have to do a lot of the living of life that most people have to do. But I think tennis players are, have to be self-centered. They have to be selfish, they have to be driven. And I think that's part of his beast. Married for 20 years, the McEnroe's soon will be empty nesters. Patty is working on new songs, John plays in senior events and exhibitions, and looks for the next great star among the young players training at his tennis academy in New York City. His message to them seems to be, do what I say, not exactly what I did. Don't beat yourself. Have you ever beat yourself? That is a great question. And the short answer is that never once in my life have I beaten myself. If you believe that, I'll tell you another one. I probably have beaten myself, but I tried to learn from that when I did. Here's a secret, everyone come in close. Sometimes they said I went a little too far. <laughs> in just over a week, stuffy old England will again play host to that brash American, John McEnroe, this time on the sidelines at Wimbledon to provide TV commentary, as if he could really be sidelined. When you're doing your commentary, do you mentally put yourself on that court? Well, you always do that. I don't mean now. I mean the, I know what you the... mean. My best against their best. Exactly. Yeah. How would you do? Oh, I'd kick their ass. <laughs> <laughs> Next. For me, equality has always been plain and simple. Putting the quality into equality. How to ensure equality for everyone when we're all so diverse and different? A question for our guest contributor, Cindy Lauper, the singer and co-founder of the True Colors Fund, an advocacy group for homeless LGBT youth. For me, equality has always been plain and simple. You either are or you aren't, Blanche, to kind of quote one of my favorite Betty Davis lines. Anyway, I had the opportunity 
to be on the same planet with a lot of inspiring people who actually did change my life and the lives of the people I love through their work for equality. There were many great civil rights leaders like Dr. Martin Luther King, Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan, Harvey Milk, I could go on, and Maya Angelou, where would I be without her books? So today, I was talking to my husband about equality, and he says, why don't you just drop the E and emphasize the word quality? Maybe by just concentrating on making the quality of life better for people around you, you might naturally end up with greater equality. So that got me thinking how right he is, that he's really just talking about the old Sunday school lesson they beat into you at Catholic school. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or better still, if you want people to listen, you got to listen to them. And let's not forget my favorite, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So, I think today I will emphasize the word quality rather than discuss the word equality. Because maybe less talk and more quality caring might lead us to do more action. And everyone knows action speaks louder than words, right? Be it in sports or family. Hey, even in romance. Like I had to tell my first boyfriend, you're going to stand around all night or you're going to do something because I got things to do. Ahead, all you need is love. It was 50 years ago today that the Beatles went on live TV to play All You Need Is Love. They were part of an international satellite extravaganza called Our World, watched by 350 million people or more. This morning, half a century later, you get to watch the original black and white broadcast turn to living color.
I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning.